0: and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you again for tuning in for another episode. Excited about this episode. It's with somebody that I've been listening to for quite some time. His name is Justin Sonseri. He's a licensed family and marriage therapist and he seems to be somewhat obsessed with the polyvagal theory something I've been learning about I think was founded by a gentleman by the name of Stephen Porges who has a tremendous gift to offer the world and we have a lot to learn from it and Justin is someone that's spent a lot of time not just studying the ideas but putting them into practice and application in his field of work. And it seems like he's gained some really amazing insights through that process. And he always shares these on his podcast, Stuck Not Broken. So I encourage you guys to check that out when you have a chance. And um, just really excited to talk to him. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation and get something out of it.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. I want to thank you all for joining me today for another episode. I'm really excited about this episode. I got Justin Sinceri today on the the podcast, and this is somebody I've been listening to for quite some time now. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and he's the host of the Stuck Not Broken podcast, which is just an outstanding outlet to learn more about trauma, how to heal from it. And a lot of things that are all that are related to that idea. Justin, please say hello to the audience for me.
3: Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me on. I am super honored and really happy, honestly, to be doing this. And thank you for being so patient and waiting for me and my schedule to line up.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I'm honored to, to have you here. I mean, I personally, I've been listening to your show a good bit for probably uh, about a year or so. And have got a lot of value myself out of it. Nice. And um and I've really also just enjoyed listening to you progress as, you know, how, you, how you've how you done the, the program itself. And I've read the books that you've mentioned, that you've uh, referred to, and I guess the people that you've learned from. And I get a lot out of those books, but I don't really feel skilled at conveying that message to our audience. So I thought it'd be a really outstanding idea to have you on to talk about maybe trauma in general, Um, the polyvagal theory to to lay a foundation about what that is. And then, you know, application, like how do people integrate these ideas into their life to improve? At the mindful movement, a big part of our message is really empowering people to play a bigger role in their own self-healing. And as I get older, I feel like I'm learning that almost every adult has something To heal from that stems from some time in their their past and I guess the polyfegal the polyvagal theory gives you kind of like a scaffolding to work with yeah and um, I think that's really valuable and I'm really looking forward to being a conduit for you so you could kind of convey that message first I guess how did you even get in into this work
3: I am a therapist. Well, how did I get into the political theory? Or How did I get into being a therapist?
2: I guess all that. Yeah. Okay. Start where um, you like.
3: I I was originally an art major, and I didn't like doing it for work. I didn't like doing what the teacher teacher told me to, and so as an artist, I wasn't. I'm like, I, this is not going to go anywhere because I, if I can't do what the teacher wants me to do, I'm not going to follow what a boss wants me to do. And so I was like, all right, it's time to think of a different major, and I switched to. Um, I was I was gonna. I was interested in the i I remember talking about the guidance counselor saying what's that thing where you talk to somebody one-on-one and they're like oh you know counseling therapy i'm like yeah i want to do that and so they talked about doctorate level stuff and you have to write all these papers and i'm like no that's way too much like what, what else you got and so it eventually went from a bachelor's in sociology to getting my master's in counseling psychology and um it was just i don't know it just felt right it just i was just pulled in the direction of doing that one-on-one counseling thing and it just felt right and I've pursued it and I absolutely love it the political theory no so I guess it's important to know that I work with teens I've been doing this for about 12 years teens kids families I do parenting groups I do I just started about a few months ago my private practice where I'm starting to meet with adults as well and um, most of the people I work with have some level of trauma or family dysfunction or mental health disorder, whatever you want to call these things, like that's pretty much constant is some level of traumatic experience and what they're left with day to day and how they deal or don't deal with that. So that's been my constant. And, um, I work for a school district right now. And there was one summer where I just wasn't super happy with the work I was doing with it, with one client in particular who had a heavy, heavy, heavy history of severe trauma And I was like this, I'm not doing good enough. And I want to basically revisit this trauma stuff all over again and start from scratch. I'll pretend like I know nothing at all because you're like, you're taught things about how trauma lives in the body, quote unquote, trauma lives in the body and all this body kind of stuff and trauma stuff. And it sticks with you and you hear about flight and fight and, but nothing ever brings it together. And there's just these ideas that kind of exist in the mind of a therapist, but up until that point, nothing really brought it together. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna start from scratch. And I discovered something called somatic experiencing from Peter Levine. And it, I just did like YouTube search, which is like the go-to for learning uh, critical trauma-informed <laughs> University of information. <laughs> So I stumbled upon Peter Levine and he was doing this incredible somatic body-related stuff. And I'm like, no, it's nonsense, BS. I don't believe it. And I kept watching him and I'm like, no, there's something here. That I'm just not getting it. But I see these things that he's doing because he, sh- he would do stuff on video and he would teach about it and, and whatnot. And I'm, so my initial reaction was like, no. But then I was like, no, there's something here. And I know nothing. I'm going to pretend like I know nothing. So let's pursue this. And that led me to Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the creator of the polyvagal theory, doing these very dry lectures up on stage in front of all these highly academic people and I'm like I understand enough of what he's saying to build on this and and that summer at work it was just like something blossomed within me and I was like I have to I have to get this down this is the key that I'm missing this is the stuff the scaffolding as you call it this is the stuff that I need in order to better understand where my clients are at and uh, it, it's been fantastic it's, it's fundamentally shifted everything I do Well, it's, no, it's, I still, I still bring a lot of the same stuff to therapy, but it's, it's it's shifted how I understand now. I know like why it works, but I've also can see my clients differently now and kind of where they're at on something called the polyvagal ladder, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I can see where they're at and track where they need to be, where they're going on a very biological autonomic nervous system level. So it's not this like, wishy-washy how are things going this week kind of thing it's really like i can track where they're at i can track where their energy is at as far as their their biology so it's really in that way has fundamentally shifted how i view and what i bring to the therapy room hmm.
2: that's great so i guess you you mentioned the polyvagal theory a couple times here could you um i guess lay a, some context around just what that is
3: what is that yeah It's the, it's in one sentence, it's the science of how mammals connect to each other. And so it's not just humans, but we are, we are mammals. And it's basically how, what what in our biology pulls us toward each other, but also what repels us from each other. And that's where trauma comes in and what, what happens within our, our, our biology in response to uh, these events that are highly distressing but also what happens within our biology when we interact with somebody and we feel that connection with them, that we've got safety or love or, or bonding. So it's the science of like what's happening in those two very different, um, potentials, but also what happens in between. And it's the science of like, of mental health. Why do some people change? Why are some people more stuck? And I believe they can change, but some people might take longer. Some people respond to therapy really quickly. Some don't. So it's like, oh, this brings an understanding of kind of what's happening within the biology. And so the basic idea—that's the basic idea of of the polyvagal theory. The a little bit more drilled down is that it it explains that we have our autonomic nervous system, but that our the, the autonomic nervous system basically responds to external and internal stimuli and shifts the entire biology of the body in preparation for safety or danger. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So when our, when our bodies perceive, and this is really like brainstem kind of stuff, when our bodies perceive that we're safe, our autonomic nervous system shifts into social engagement behaviors. So when when you and I, if you and I were to meet in person, we would probably shake hands. It's not something we exactly choose to do. We'd make eye contact with each other. We'd smile, right? We don't choose to do these things. It just kind of happens. Shaking hands, there is some sort of like cultural stuff there as well. But when it comes to like basic things like eye contact and smiles, we don't choose to smile. We don't choose to make eye contact. We simply do because those biological pathways become active when we're safe. So that's at the top of what we call the polyvagal ladder. And if if we're not safe, like if you and I were hanging out and we heard a loud noise, you know, outside, we would shift out of our social engagement system and we would drop down the polyvagal ladder into probably our more flight energy. Our bodies would become tense and we would probably be primed to get out of that situation, whatever it is. So that's, it's, it's a ladder. We go down. So if we can't be safe, we drop down into our flight energy. Now, if it was something that there really is some danger here, we're accurately detecting there's danger in the environment, but we can't run away because the door's over there and now we're surrounded by walls. And now that there's some sort of threat that's now approaching us, but we can't escape because so we cannot successfully run away from the situation. Our bodies would drop down into fight energy. And this is the sympathetic uh, nervous system or autonomic nervous system. If we can't be safe, we drop down to flights. We want to run away. If we, can't, if we can't run, we drop down into our fight energy. And then our bodies become primed for more aggressive posturing. And we, our, our faces would change. Our muscle tension would change. We would show that intruder, whatever it is, that we are now capable of aggressing, that we will close space to get them to back off, right? But if we can't safe we can't run away we can't fight we drop down to the bottom of the polyvagal ladder and that would be the shutdown system and if this was a situation where we really perceived that we cannot get away we cannot fight back we would collapse we potentially collapse and when we collapse that's a very it's like playing dead or death right. feigning and all of these things on the ladder uh, being safe running away fighting or collapsing these, these all increase the likelihood of survival These all evolved within us in this sequential order of events, if that makes sense, or order of operations. They evolve within us in order to increase the chances of the organism, us, surviving. And collapsing actually does help to increase the chances of survival. Part of collapsing is you go pretty much completely numb. You don't feel pain. You also might potentially detach from reality, like uh, dissociation. Hmm. And so if you are numb and you dissociate, now you don't have to feel the pain of what just happened. And you don't really have to remember it either, at least immediately. If I don't feel it and I don't remember it, my chances of being able to escape that situation, if the opportunity opens itself, are probably increased. And what I, what I, the first thing, it's a ladder. So you drop down in that sequence, but you also go up in that opposite sequence. So if if you and I were attacked by a lion in a room and we collapsed, if that lion were somehow distracted by i don't know i don't know why these things are in the the house or (laughs) or wherever we're at in the first place but if that lion was like worn out and now a hyena was approaching because they wanted to take us right we even though we're shut down and sort of that uh, death feigning, we're still scanning for opportunities to get out of the situation we're still it's called neurocepting but We might see, oh, there's a hyena coming in here. The lion's distracted. We actually have a chance. So what we would do is come out of shutdown, back up the ladder. The first stop would be the fight energy. And now we don't have to think about it. We don't have to feel it because we're very numb. So we come up into our fight energy and that's going to give us the power necessary to either push ourselves up off the ground, push the lion off of us, punch the hyena, I don't know. (laughs) But it's going to give us that power in our upper body to be able to create distance and once we do that successfully then we're going to neurocept oh now there's an outlet now we can, now there's an escape and so we'll go higher up the ladder into our escape uh, flight energy and we're going to book it we're going to run gotcha and then you and I to get to the very top of our ladders are going to go back to our people connect with them hug them breathe they're going to console us and we'll be back at the top of our polyvagal ladders are our ladders so that's that's what the polyvagal brings is this understanding of a a sequence of events of going down the ladder and back up and usually when we talk about like someone who survived some horrible thing it's like well why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that but this is not an issue of choice when you and i run away from that situation or faint or whatever it is we're not choosing to do that our autonomic nervous system is 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 basically saying this is what will increase my likelihood of survival, and and it goes through that sequence of of events that those order. And of operations. what did you
2: what was the word you used to say when you're when you're coming back up the ladder? This when you go from one step to another, neuroception. Neuroception. Okay. Yeah,
3: that's that's a a word that Dr. Port has basically created to explain something that we really didn't have words for before. Oh, okay. And, and neuroception is. That's it's, nice
2: to be able to just make up your own words.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. And everybody
2: agree, oh, that's a great like, idea.
3: Sounds plausible, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's we don't talk in that way typically. So a new word was, was really needed to explain like what's happening on an autonomic level because this is like brainstem stuff. And so in a way, humans are kind of like, I don't like comparing this to computers, but in a way we are in the sense that when there, there are things, there are like biological things actually You're programmed driven. in. Or... Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So there's things that happen outside of us, like a loud sound that will trigger unconsciously. And neuroception is completely unconscious. We don't think about it. We don't plan it. We don't, uh, you know, you get the idea. So right. it's like it, we neurocept whether various levels of safety or danger. And so not just loud sound, like I said, loud sounds is an obvious one. But things like just if I take away my facial affect, like if all of a sudden my face goes flat and I just start talking to you, or if I take away the, the prosody of my voice and I'm just talking flat like this, like you might feel like, whoa, something just like you might feel in your biology, huh. something just shifted. Like Justin just became dangerous. And hopefully you don't feel that way about me. But if, if you know, if like if we were strangers and we had just met on the street and I talked to you with wide eyes and a flat affect, like no facial muscles moving, or my voice is flat. Your 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 biology your you will neurocept this mammal this organism is not safe. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's and all I guess stem. that's
2: because the nerve, uh, the the vagus nerve, is responsible for a lot of the muscles in the face itself.
3: No, the the vagus nerve gets it's called polyvagal. The vagus nerve is really just a conduit. It holds the fibers and the cables from the stem and diverts it to. Um, all these different functions of the body. Gotcha. So the the biggest nerve is not what we're worried about. What we're worried about is in the brainstem. What what uh, what's the neuroception? Like what is being detected as safety or danger, and what's the capacity to drop to, to go up and down the ladder? But it's
2: per, it's perceived like threat. It's not necessarily. It's not always like no a real threat.
3: It could be. So it perceived could mean that it's subjective but when you say perception it's as if it so like there's a student i was meeting with and he was like 17 and he was telling me about his life in his neighborhood which was not like my neighborhood his neighborhood's pretty darn dangerous gunshots are kind of the norm hmm. so for him his perception of a gunshot was different than mine because he had been around it so much and he had some level of I don't want to say being accustomed to it, but it's like it was the norm. And so what was once probably a danger cue for him over time became not a danger cue. But gunshots are still dangerous. The sound is still dangerous.
2: But right? there's a subjectivity to like stress or threat. Like to, for one person could be very different to the other. And the threshold that one person would have yeah. where they would go from one step on the ladder to the other would be different yeah. from one person. To
3: the next. I, I would say so. And that's part of that's going to be culture. Part of that's going to be DNA. I'm sure. I don't know how you track that, but I'm sure it's DNA. But part mm-hmm. of that is also, I think a, the big part of it is what, how much of an anchor do you have at the top of your ladder? If your safety and social engagement system at the top is really strong, if you've exercised that and you have a really strong hold in there, then what you're able to tolerate will, will increase. Meaning, if you're so in a that's situation... That's really interesting. So, yeah. so
2: for someone that like lives relatively like alone and doesn't have um, like a strong, regular, I guess, yeah, social so component in life.
3: Like, think about a kid who does not develop that system because their parents are neglectful or abusive. If you don't develop that in childhood, it's still possible but it becomes a lot more difficult and you, it's like a, it's like a muscle. You, you have to exercise the ability right. to have access to your safety and social engagement system. Likewise, if you have a really strong one, even in childhood, but then you end up living alone. And for some during quarantine, all of us feel this, like during shut, the shutdown quarantine stuff, even the most fundamentally mentally healthiest of us probably felt like this doesn't feel right. Like I feel more irritability or anxiousness so hopefully they have enough access to their safety state at the top of the ladder to tolerate that but even like isolation over time is going to wear on you you have to have human interaction like it's a must in order to to keep exercising that safety and social engagement you have to have that system you have to be actually exercising that system and you have to have social engagement with other human beings or uh, other other mammals really and and during this isolation time we probably see people are dropping down their ladder enough to where they notice it. Now, maybe not enough to like run out of the house screaming, but probably enough to notice, like I feel more irritable than I typically would if I were able to go to work and interact with people in person.
2: Are you noticing a difference in your, cause you, you practice, like you work with people one-on-one or with families. I mean, do you notice a difference since, you know, yeah. March of you do?
3: Yeah. The, the kids that I, I meet with, uh, we still meet through zoom or phone calls. They hate it. They, and these are kids mm. who could not stand going to school. But once that social connection is taken away, after a, after a couple of weeks, most of them were saying, like, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of this isolation. I want to go back to school. Like, they felt the shift, and they, they can't stand it. They have, they're really having a hard time. A lot of these kids are having a very hard time. Yeah, you got to question just,
2: at what point that, that you know, you that that's worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and so... You, Trauma seems like very subjective too, or I guess not subjective as a word, but like relative. Like, is there easy for someone to look at someone else's trauma and like think one is worse than the other? Well, it
3: depends on what we mean by trauma. And so when it comes to the polyvagal theory and through uh, like Peter Levine and somatic experiencing and the somatic psychology kind of stuff, when we say trauma, we're not talking about the event the person went through. When we say trauma, we're talking about how did the event impact their biology, their nervous, their autonomic nervous system. So how did that event or events, how did that impact where they're at on their ladder and their ability to go back up the, to self-regulate and go back up the ladder? So yeah, when okay. I say I'm working with someone who's traumatized, what I mean is that they're stuck down their ladder, that they went through a thing or a number of things or we're not given the appropriate bonding and attachment and healthy love stuff in childhood, that they're now stuck down their ladder. So that's what we mean by trauma is where are we at on the polyvagal ladder in our, our biology.
2: Gotcha. And for some people, like there's no reference point. Like if you've never been at the top ladder, I guess you really need your hand held to, to find your way like you, there otherwise there'd be no awareness that there's a target of some sort. True.
3: True. Yeah. I mean, how many people say like the way I grew up was just normal and I had no idea. Right. What else was out there until you hear about it or until you talk with that friend and you're like, Oh, you don't experience these same things that I experience and your life and your family is a lot different. And then you realize there's really a whole kind of reality I haven't experienced yet. And then the, the capacity to notice that there's more, or to be curious about what else you're missing out on probably grows. Gotcha.
2: You mentioned a word a moment ago, that I've heard on your podcast a lot, regulate. I've heard self-regulate, co-regulate. Can you explain a little bit about what you're referring to there?
3: I think that actually has a lot to do with what you said was uh, handholding. And co-regulation is, is when you have, I'll say a mammal, but really, I mean, we're talking about people, but when you have a person or even a dog, honestly, mammals, when one of them is in their safe and social state, like my dog has its own ladder or my dogs, and they can get to the top of their ladder and dogs are really good at like going up and down the ladder and they can exist in their safe and social state. When you come home, you can feel that they're, I'll call it happy, but you feel their engagement, their social engagement. And so, if I come home from work, and or let's say I come out of my office during a quarantine to hit work, and my <laughs> dog is there, and he, she's super happy, and like her tail's wagging, and she has some energy, and she, you can feel that playful energy. If I'm down my ladder, what that is is I'm I'm going to pick up on my dog's safety cues, and that's going to help me shift up my polyvagal ladder. So my autonomic nervous system is going to shift up towards the safe and social state and so you 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 can feel the shift happening like if you have an animal or someone that you're really close with and you feel their safety like you you feel the shift of like i'm really irritable but i kind of just melt around this person or when my cat gets on my lap i just sort of feel this like melting or say it again
2: it's contagious yeah like that's just like fear can be contagious like yeah the bringing you out of it can be
3: that's co regulation. That's exactly what it is: is, is that you, your system, your, your neuroception detects safety in others because they're giving it, they're giving off safety cues. And once your body t- detects that, that allows you to start climbing up your polyvagal ladder. So for someone who has not experienced a whole lot of that, They'll. They can be around someone who is in their safety state. Someone who's giving smiles and eye crinkles. And that's. Those are cues that I'm in my safety state. If I can't do that, that means I'm not in my safety state. But someone who has, who lived in a more traumatized state, can be around someone who is in a very safe and social state. But that traumatized individual might not pick up on those cues, or at least immediately. Hmm. And those cues may actually give them a sense of like unease or distrust because. One, they're just like not used to other people treating them or being safe, period. But also if if eventually like in therapy, when I work with kids who start to like buy into me and they start to feel trust in me, when they get to the top of their ladder through therapy, it's extremely uncomfortable. They're not used to feeling trust or vulnerability or oh, connection. They're not used to feeling connection. And so what happens is they'll go right back down their ladder.
2: Because it's familiar.
3: It's it's it is their comfort yeah it is being in a more flight energy being having more anxiety is they don't like it but it's familiar yeah and so that what we have to do is exercise going up and down tapping into safety coming back down tapping into it coming back down and you build the capacity to stay more anchored in your safety system than not
2: so how do you balance like if you're let's say um supporting a friend that's going through something yeah and Like, you don't want to come off as, like, well, just don't be depressed. You know, like, don't be that way. But And so if you're, like, actively thinking, well, let me be a safe space for this person. So let me smile at them. Let me make sure, like, my mood is good. So, like, that might come off in an undesirable way, potentially, as if you're not being empathetic, maybe.
3: If you're faking it, yeah. And so... I hear where you're coming from and and I agree, like we want to be there for our friends and we want to create safety for them. But ultimately their nervous system is out of our control. Right. The best we can do is to simply be in our safety state, like to really come to these, to our friends and our loved ones in our own best place, like at the top of our ladders. Right. And, And when you do that, they will naturally pick up on those, cues of safety they could they might I, I can't guarantee this and but it'll be genuine they might experience it as like why are you acting like that you're kind of weird yeah <laughs> i know for me like i was i was in a much more shut down place uh a number of years ago and there were co-workers who were not like they were way up in the top of their ladder and i couldn't stand them they were just annoying as all hell like why are you smiling all the time <laughs> like leave me alone
2: like resenting them for being happy yeah, <laughs> pretty much
3: and it was, it, I just felt this like grating of like, you're just, they just irritated me, but that was out of their, my feelings were out of their control. They just kept being them. And over time I felt that warming of like, Oh, like it's just me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> and it took, it took a while for me to kind of get accustomed to a couple of these people who were like way in their safety state so much so that it was like, you got to stop. You're annoying me. <laughs> but over time it, it, it kind of like whittle me down passively they weren't actively coming to me and saying hey do you want to check in how you doing but it wasn't that it was just they were just good they were in their safety state
2: and but they were really teaching you about totally you were learning something about yourself in by yeah. being in relationship indirectly, with them
3: indirectly yeah and, and so i think that's kind of the beauty of co-regulation is you don't really have to plan it it it's 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 unconscious it's, auto, automat, it's autonomic. Right, but it's, it just happens. And it might take a while. And the more people you have around you that are in their safety state, I think you're probably more likely to come out of your own defensive state more easily or quicker, but it's automatic. You don't choose to come out of it. Exactly. Now, right. once you have, once you have more access and you have a stronger anchor in your safety state, then you can do something called self-regulation, which is you don't, rely on other people um you 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 look inward and like like you already know what works for you and your body or not like i know drawing works for me really well so if i was in a funk if i was down my ladder in more of a defensive state i know that if i go draw that's a way for me to self regulate and come to the top of my ladder
2: but you have to be aware to do be able to do that you have to be able to watch yourself
3: you do and that means frustratingly that you have to already kind of have some access to the top of your ladder. You have to have some, like enough access to the top of it to be like, okay, I, I recognize where I'm at. You know what I mean? And, I, and that's I, the
2: anchor, like enough at the yeah, top. Exactly, okay. Yeah. yeah I want to learn more about some different regulation strategies, but I guess before you mentioned that like trauma is more of a response to event. It's not an event. And what I've noticed, as I've learned more about trauma and my own, I'm recognizing it in others where like, they don't know what has been traumatic to them. And you see people suffering, and they're not aware why. And there's so many different things that it could be born out of. Like, like we think it's a car accident, or maybe child abuse, but it Like it could show up in, you know, your, your boss is an asshole and you see it every day and it's this like little dose of it, but it's daily. Um, I think
3: there, I think there is something to be said about, you know, I I think there's a difference between stress and trauma. Although I really don't like to get in that debate because really what it comes down to is it's not the external event. It's the
2: response. It's
3: yeah. How are you doing inside? Now, now I, I, of course, there are some events that are probably more likely to lead to a traumatic nervous system, like a traumatized nervous system. Okay, so sexual assault, war, these things are probably neglect. I mean, all this stuff—it's probably more likely to lead to lead someone to be stuck in a defensive state, to be stuck down their ladder. Of co- like, of course. All right. But two individuals, and this kind of goes back to the um, what we said earlier about being subjective you take two individuals you put them on the same bus and if that bus bus gets in a car crash a severe one even those two individuals are going to walk away from that with probably potentially much different responses and six months down the line their ability to self-regulate themselves and come out of any traumatized state they might be in it's probably going to look a lot different so it's not the event it's what the trauma is being stuck in a defensive state
2: Hmm. and it's more than just it's going to be determined like in that scenario with two people same car accident different outcomes like it's more than just their reference point of where the top of the ladder is there's other components to like maybe genetic or probably maybe could it also be like just their history of stress or trauma like um
3: probably oh yeah oh yeah definitely that yeah so their history of if, if so th- I think the differentiator is going to be how we walk away from that is going to be a lot of factors from like childhood and attachment and all, all that stuff. But really it's going to be how much access do these individuals have to their safety state? So hmm. if, if person A has tons of access to it, they're going to be able to walk away from that bus crash and self-regulate eventually. I don't know how long maybe immediately, maybe after a few months, I don't know. But they'll be able to self-regulate back up to the top of the ladder. And they might have a whole new appreciation for life and I don't know. But the person B who has less access to their safety state, maybe due to a childhood history of, of, of trauma, walking away from that accident, they're probably going to have less capacity to self-regulate Back up to their safe and social state, or they, they might have less of an anchor in their safe and social state in order to be able to do so. Does that make sense?
2: Hmm. Yeah, well, so that's,
3: that's probably the differentiator. You could argue, like, you know, DNA and genetics. I don't know how we track that. I don't know how in therapy I make use of that. Right. But when it comes to this autonomic nervous system stuff, we feel this. Like, we feel these shifts. We can notice when we're smiling or not. We can notice when we have, like, a a twist in our gut and that's that shutdown system coming to life we can feel our heartbeat increasing that's the sympathetic flight fight system so this is stuff that we can totally use and on an individual level you can use people can use this on an individual level this knowledge now how it applies to them specifically that's up for them they, they have to figure out and kind of become curious about how does this apply to me in my individual wonderful nervous system so it's hard to say like
2: but you have to care enough like about yourself to do that work. And some people are it's like their self-worth yeah. is deteriorated because of the trauma, so they never yeah. get to the point where like oh it's time I deserve to be better, like I'm going to work on it.
3: I agree. That's a really
2: un- I feel like that's a really unfortunate probably common scenario.
3: It is, and it's completely unfair and it's totally jacked up, but that that is the reality of it is yeah, you do have to care enough about yourself, but you might not even be to that point where you care enough about yourself and you're buying into yourself enough, but you might be at a point where you're just fed up with the way life is. Mm. And maybe that is some level of caring, but it also just might be like, I'm just tired of this. What's and something different? yeah, and so that might be the start. And maybe you don't buy into and love yourself and care about yourself quite yet. Maybe it's, maybe it's bloss- maybe it's there, maybe it's building but I'm just fed up with the way things are and I will get to the point of where I do care about myself enough to, you know, do whatever I need to do. But like, I'm just fed up with this and that's my starting point. And that, that's pretty much, I think how it goes usually. And a lot of people I meet with in, in therapy, it's like, I, I don't care about myself a lot, but I know I'm just tired of this and the caring right. and love for the self grows o- over time.
2: It's tough because it seems like so many things that drive people to needing more support, they stem from events that are like so early in life. Like, I guess we're really susceptible to to what happens when the brain is developing. Like I've heard, I mean, I've heard some people reference that like even before you're born, like third trimester that things could affect you where you're, you're entering the world and you're already, you know, down the ladder a little bit, you're right, entering exactly. the world in a state of stress or, yeah. and, you know, if that's your normal out of the starting gate, that's gotta be a really challenging journey to, to dig deep enough to figure out where it started, because how would you ever really have a reference point? Like I, I've heard of when people were born and they have, um, the cord wrapped around their neck for instance like you're oh, yeah, entering yeah. the world being strangled to death and nobody might be thinking about it at the time they just you know cut right. the thing off to, you know get the baby breathing everything's fine but like their starting point is totally different and nobody really noticed and you know 20 30 years down the road there could be all kinds of stuff that is stems from that but like you don't you don't know where to look like you have no reference that there is an issue so it's, it's got to be tough to uncover some of the things or like the memory blocking out something so terrible I've heard a lot of stories of people like blocking out events that happen yeah. when they're young where well, their, it, it, well, their brain doesn't want them to access it
3: it might be like yeah maybe they're actively blocking things out and they know something's there and they're just like nope not thinking about it not talking about it not feeling it but there's also, when you go down all the way down to your shutdown state in the polyvagal ladder, when you go all the way down to that, um, that collapse, part of that is dissociation and the memory is gonna be distorted or mm. incomplete. And memories usually are, but for that event where you're like, literally your brain is like, I, to survive, I don't need this higher functioning. I don't need to remember this in order to survive this moment. Mm. So all those functions just sort of shut down. And the shutdown collapse, the body is conserving resources. So everything literally slows down, shuts down, blood circulation, everything just slows way the heck down to mimic death as a way to increase chances of survival. Um, but even if got... you
2: don't get that far, on that point there, Justin, I mean, when you're, yeah. let's say you're going just one step down the ladder, like yeah. you're already going through slowing down of let's say non-essential activities of the body like physiologically i I would from what i understand
3: when you go from safety down to flight energy that's the first stop Mm -hmm. you're sympathetic so everything kicks up so to run away we have to have faster breathing higher heart rate right everything picks up metabolism i believe is increases as well everything picks up same thing with fight energy is a really high intensity the body some things
2: get backburnered like digestion or healing or other things that aren't as urgent to have in that moment
3: critical thinking is offline like when you're when you're in a very high it becomes about survival so when you're when you're kicked when the sympathetic system's kicked on and you're in flight fight energy and people will feel it as anger or anxiety day to day when you're in a really anxious place, you're not thinking clearly because the body is basically like, we don't need this to survive in this moment. So critical thinking shuts down. And now it becomes about high energy and escaping the situation. Even if you were safe, literally safe, your body might still be in that stuck state. So yeah, as we drop down the ladder, there are some things, some abilities that are unlocked, like running away, using aggression. We unlock those abilities, but then we also lose other things like weighing pros and cons right that's really important
2: yeah i mean think about now how there's so much fear that's out there like you're less likely to make a good decision like i've noticed things in society where i feel like the scientific method is kind of abandoned like you're right like critical thinking that we can't think straight because you're worried about what's to come or all the uncertainty around your life situation that's yep. really unfortunate and probably largely unnoticed by people.
3: And now we're all going to go vote pretty soon. <laughs> the timing. Right? We're all in a perfectly socially safe place to go and make... They uh, should do a test before you enter
2: the voting booth. Like, where are you on your ladder?
3: <laughs> if you can smile, you're in a good place. That, that <laughs> yeah, a good that's test, yeah. <laughs>
2: So let's get into regulation a little bit. Uh, I mean, you mentioned... so one's not necessarily better than the other, like self-regulating or co-regulating. It's just kind of whatever makes sense for that, your given situation at that moment of time to move up the ladder. I know, I, I think I find like uh, personal favorite tactics and I don't, I assume that that's what I'm doing. I'm going up the ladder, but things that chill me out, things that make me feel better. Um, from a, so is there a goal to like, Is does co-regulation, uh Have more value than self-regulating? Does it matter, or you just need to find a way to m- move up the ladder?
3: I well, so co-regulate. The differentiator here is co-regulation is not something that you do. It's passive. It kind of happens to you in a way. Gotcha. The other like person somebody's body there. language is
2: radiating yeah, off to you.
3: That's it. So it's really out of your hands, and in a lot of ways, it's really out of your hands. You you can you can position yourself to where you're around people who are safe, and co- sort of absorb their co you know their cues of safety. You but now, if,
2: if they don't have if, if they got a mask right. on their face, you can't even see that smile.
3: It's hampered. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's unfortunate. Hundred percent right. So co-regulation is not. It's really out of all of our hands. That I think on on our, as an individual, you can do the best you can to self-regulate so that you get to the top of your ladder, and that's something you can ultimately choose to do you can't choose to be at the top of your ladder but you can choose to do whatever it is that helps you to get to the top of your ladder to increase the chances of it happening
2: you can choose to practice
3: yeah and so if we have enough people in the world who are able to self-regulate enough then all of a sudden we're going to be have enough people out in the world who are naturally giving off safety cues and that is co-regulation kind of in mass but that starts gotcha. with the individual in my opinion right so it's not a better or worse, but when it comes down to so when it comes down to regulating, ideally you want, in my opinion, you want to have as much self-driven empowerment behind that and not be a passive recipient of other people's cues of safety or danger potentially.
2: Yeah. I love that idea. Well, tell us maybe, um, some of the methods, if you would, and then maybe some of your personal favorites that you feel like you rely on.
3: Yeah, there, so there's tons of options. Music can be a really, really, really good way of self-regulating, whether it's making it or listening to it. When you listen to music, you're hearing somebody who has something called prosody, vocal prosody. They have a wider range of their voice. Oh, interesting. And if you have a wider range of your voice, that means you are a safe mammal. Because when you're not, when you're dropped down into your flight or fight energy, your voice becomes a lot more flat. So when you listen to music, that could be a really good way. If you can mindfully listen to music, that means when you listen to it, you don't just passively listen to it, but you really experience the music. How does your body want to move? How do you feel inside? And it's not about the lyrics exactly. It's about the sound of it and how that triggers your, uh, your reception but that's music. Singing can be a really good way. Um, it's kind of like, even if you're not in a really good place, if you can access your uh, vocal cords enough to be able to sing, that's going to kind of trick your brain. I'll say trick your brainstem into to, to thinking, oh, okay, we're safe. So even if you have more anxious energy, if you can sing, that's telling your brain you're safe enough to do that. So let's just calm the whole system down. Um, same thing with deep breathing. If I can, be cognizant enough to take a deep breath and breathe it out slowly on the exhale that's going to tell my body my brain we're safe we're good but if i'm breathing more fast-paced like right now i'm I'm breathing kind of fast-paced with you when i do presentations i breathe at a faster pace so i have to tell myself every now and then slow it down slow it down so these are just these are like breathing um being around other people that are safe Singing, dance, movement, dancing could be a really good way. These things that are that involve movement or co-regulation, uh, these things are, these are ways that you can tell yourself, remind yourself that you are actually physically safe, and then your body will help to slow down. You can you can literally tell yourself that you're safe. That might help things slow things down. Like a, uh, just
2: using like a mantra and just like affirmation. Uh, sure.
3: If you can mindfully be with that, yeah. Meditation can be. A, a way to uh, tap into how you feel and let some of that energy come out. Just, you know, come work your way up the ladder. Art can be a great way. Swimming, lifting weight. I mean, anything can be, as long as you're doing it mindfully and you're really feeling the experience of these things, these can be really, really good ways. To it's to not really what you're life. doing.
2: It's how you're doing it. So like for one person, uh, rock climbing might be super stressful, but for another person, it might be meditative and calm.
3: Yes. And now for the same person, who's in more of a shutdown state, let's say someone who's really into rock climbing. If they're in a very shutdown state, like a very collapsed, feels like depression kind of place, mm-hmm. then they might not be in the state to go out and rock climb. Maybe they could do it and work their way up, but they might. their first step might be to say, like, you know what? This is where I'm at. I'm in a very shutdown place. I'm just going to allow myself to be silent, maybe do some meditation, maybe do some drawing, Maybe just sit in silence. I don't know. I'm just going to do this first. And when I feel like I have enough of my sympathetic energy, then it, then it might be a really good time for me to go do some rock climbing or whatever it is, right? So the first step, you might, your body might not be primed for it, might not be ready for it. So the first step might just be to sit in quiet and then work your way up to that fight energy. Now, rock climbing, boxing, these are great ways to utilize your upper body. And that's where the fight energy lives. Oh, so you might be able to go box and hit things and then you feel that sort of like discharge you'll feel that come out in a way
2: so wait and that's feels- interesting so you you say because it's upper body uh focus and that's yeah in that fight zone so then what does that mean like if you're trying to move from freeze to flight like uh i mean Could you go for a run? Because it's like running, it's flight? Yeah.
3: Well, so freeze is more, that's a separate concept. And we get this mixed up a lot. So shutdown is that collapse, like just that limp thing, right? Freeze is actually something separate. It's a mixed state. It's where you mix up the sympathetic flight-fight system along with the shutdown system at the same time where both of those things are active. And what happens is you're really revved up because you have the flight-fight energy. Mm -hmm. but your body also detects it has to immobilize in order to survive. So you immobilize in a very tense, rigid way. Your muscles are all flexed, right? And like a panic attack, that's, it's very tense. Breathing becomes very, very shallow. So you're immobilized, which is the shutdown system. You're immobilizing while really charged up. So it's not a limp collapse. It's a very tense, rigid freeze. So that's what freezes. but, I think what you're asking is basically if you have that flight energy, like what do you do with that? Yeah. That would be utilizing your legs in some way would be a really good way. And that might be going for a run. If you could mindfully go for a run, you might feel, Oh, like I really feel like I can more socially engage with people now. Or I just the walk, I guess too. Walking could be it. You, you could sit there in your chair and flex your calves. That might be enough. Hmm. I know when I do therapy, we don't go running. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we could, <laughs> but we don't. I've done walks around the block with the students I work with, but typically in session, I have fidgets, just little toys they can play with. Oh, nice. And you can fidget with things. If you can fidget with things mindfully, you can get the same sort of release. And so when people are in more of a fight state, they'll do a lot of squeezing because it's like, it's sort of aggressive. It uses the uh, forearm, the wrist, bicep. Maybe You, you can feel the energy come out through using those muscles. If they're in more of a flight energy, they'll tap their leg a lot. And so what I'll do is bring their mindful attention to that and actually like go ahead and tap it, feel it, like experience it. And you'll see it just like die down a little bit, little by little. Or they'll, they can flex their calf, they can flex their thighs and then release it wherever they're kind of feeling more of that energy being stored, I guess I'll put it that way. Right. And so if they can mindfully flex and release, that's enough. And then they can work their way up the ladder from there.
2: I have a, a loved one that I know knows, um, I guess, been depressed a while, and like uh, I think has a lot of, maybe unaddressed trauma over the years. And there's an activity I notice that he like taps into where anytime a conversation comes up that is about something that might be triggering or stressful, he like hunches over and just rocks back and forth is that how common is that is that like a useful strategy or is that like
3: if you're uh, mindfully choosing to do so yeah sure
2: i don't think it's my mind- i think it's right. like a subconscious it's something i notice. it just happens
3: well it's so a good question deal-
2: i'm gonna ask him like does he does he do actually, that intentionally
3: <laughs> that's to me that's no different than uh, yeah. um grinding your teeth or picking at cuticles like there's just things that we mindlessly do our bodies just do them because our bodies are they know what we need so that that swaying back and forth might be a self-soothing thing for somebody right
2: you that's what, what I mean? it so, appears it, to be like it's yeah, just soothing
3: so, so when when we when we do these things our body knows what we need we just haven't cut up yet so if you can mindfully be with that energy of rocking or the leg tapping, or the pen clicking, or grinding your teeth, whatever it is, if you can mindfully just kind of be curious about it and actually feel it, that might be the next step toward it, like easing, and then working your way up the ladder back toward your safety and social engagement system.
2: Gotcha. So I got the impression that the vagus nerve had a lot to do with this theory, that because so much of the, I guess, the information that's going up and down, it's more so going up from the body to the brain. more stem. yeah, more yeah, and that things that we do to—I don't know—increase. I guess the tone of it. I hear it referenced that way, or stimulate the vagus nerve. Can are no. tactics to self-regulate are they? Separ- just, are those separate just,
3: topics? It's just garbled. It's, it's it's not the vagus nerve. It's that's not the issue here. No, it's what cues of, of safety are being sent to your uh, brainstem. It goes through the vagus nerve, but it comes from your lungs, your heartbeat, your muscles. It comes from all these different areas and passes. The, the vagus nerve is just the conduit.
2: It's just, gotcha. It's so you're not doing it to thing. necessarily stimulate. So if you do deep breathing, right. the signal's going up there that you're looking for, but the intention is not to stimulate that nerve. That just happens to be the path that the information is going to get up there.
3: Yeah. I don't care about people's vagus nerve. Okay. I care about their overall experience of being in the present moment. And if slowing our breathing is one step to, to get to the present moment, then that, yeah, that, that's what's important is the overall experience. So when you see hacks on how to hack your biggest nerve and whatnot, I'm like, this is what I, whatever. It doesn't, but I, like I notice
2: when I do things that I learn are ways to, I guess, stimulate or use it. I don't know. Maybe it's not stimulating. Maybe it's just you're doing something and a message is going up. Right. Like, They work like when I uh, like I don't sing because I don't want to do that to the people around me. But I, (laughs) I will, uh, I will hum a lot. There you go. Or and sometimes I'll chant if I'm like, if there's nobody looking kind of thing. But um, I do a lot of breathing, a lot of meditation, and they all seem to help. And in times where I mean, I went through a period where I was um, really sick and had a lot of like, stress and I think there was a lot of trauma going on that I guess when I stopped drinking, I stopped drinking like four and a half years ago and you don't really realize why you drink until you stop and then you're like, oh, I was doing that to you know soothe all to hide all this pain or whatever. So all that stuff would come up and then I had to like deal with it. And I wind up relying on a lot of these strategies to get through the stress related to dealing with all that.
3: So I'm not gonna disagree with you about the strategies. Those are fine, but the conception of I'm hacking my vagus nerve—that's not the issue. Okay. So if you uh, humming, yeah, that—that's what you're doing is you're utilizing your neck muscles, which is attached to your safety and social engagement system. So if you can utilize or like fake a, if you can do a smile, you ever heard of like the half smile? If you look in the mirror and do a half smile. Yeah. yeah. Just, for some reason, just smiling kind of makes you feel a little bit better. It doesn't oh yeah. Solve life's problems within but... like ten
2: or twenty seconds. It's amazing.
3: Right because you're utilizing the pathways of safety and you're also looking in the mirror. And I think you're, there's some, uh, self (laughs) co-regulation happening. Yeah. yeah, Maybe that's interesting.
2: Yeah. I guess I thought like the humming was more mechanical, like it was vibrating that, that nerve, but it's not really about that. I don't,
3: I don't think that's the issue now.
2: Because I've heard Uh, like gargling will do it. And I thought maybe it was related because it's just so close to where I guess it passes, that nerve passes through. Well,
3: how about this? Just to just find common ground because if someone ha- balks at the idea, the no one knows if they're stimulating their vagus nerve. You have no idea. Can you feel it? I don't think so. I think you can feel the effects of shifting up and down your political ladder. Right. I know when I'm in my shutdown state because I want to be alone in the dark and I feel this collapse, like I want to fold inward kind of thing. I don't need my vagus nerve to be stimulated. I know what I feel like. I know when I'm in a fight state because I want to fight. I know when I'm in my flight energy because I'm more anxious. I want to avoid things. So this has nothing. Don't worry about the vagus nerve. It's it's kind of a
2: myopic approach that doesn't isn't relevant to the ultimate outcome you're looking
3: for. I would so much rather people focus on how they feel as as a whole organism than focusing on one specific aspect that you cannot, as far as I know, day to day detect. Or feel, or really have any idea if this stuff is working. If you took, if you one of the ways is to go take a cold shower. People say that it stimulates the vagus nerve, but it's also shocking. Like you're shocking your skin, (laughs) which then that signal probably travels up the vagus nerve. I would assume. And that works. I don't know
2: why or how, but it works.
3: It's a danger cue. Cold is a danger cue. So you take a cold shower. So why does that make shocking your system? Yeah. So why it 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 activates the sympathetic system? Okay. It brings you more to life. You become more alert. Hmm. So taking a cold shower, pinching yourself, you're causing danger. So it's like your body wakes up. Hmm. It's not the biggest nerve. It's like you're you're causing these danger cues. That's the way I conceptualize it. But regardless, whether no matter what the mechanism of action is, I think ultimately. When you do, when you go take a cold shower, how does that, how does that impact you? How do you feel as a whole? That's the question. Right. So ultimately, to develop it further, hold on, I got a kindergartner in the room. Get out of here, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) To develop it further, what you want to do is take a cold shower when you're in more of a shutdown state and see like, how does that feel? And then take a cold shower when you're in more of a fight energy. How does that feel? And then it's like, so you take this external recommendation stimulus. Oh,
2: I'm sorry. I have dogs barking.
3: <laughs> That's okay. I got a kindergarten. You got the dogs. It's all right. But you, you take this external stimulus, try it out. And depending on what state you're in on your polyvagal ladder. So depending on how you feel, it's probably going to affect you differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't care about your vagus nerve. I care about what brings you to the present moment. But the key, I
2: guess, is to practice watching that. Like, how how does one practice observing? Like, what? Where am I at now? So, what do I need to do for myself? Otherwise, you, because if you're not good at watching and and noticing it, then you're just going to go through motions and maybe make things worse. Or, I mean, what's to what's to bring you back up if you can't know where you are?
3: Exactly. Yeah. So if you can't mindfully be with that energy, the defensive energy you have inside of you, you're going to end up rocking back and forth and not be aware of it. You'll right. grind your teeth, you'll pick your nails, all this stuff, right? So yeah, the, the the challenge for all of us is to be with what's happening within us. And that means we have to kind of actually be curious about like, what's what's this world inside of me like? What does it feel like to be me in a biological level? And it's not about your biggest nerve. It's about, and I I, w- I would target people like, Look at feel your chest. Like how to not physically, like with your hands, but like look in your chest area. Like notice what that feels like. Look in your gut area. Notice that, what that feels like. Because usually when these systems come on, you're gonna feel it in your face, chest, gut. To me, to me, those are the most noticeable areas. Because the face neck area, this is where the uh, the safety and social engagement system lives. When you're safe and you're socially engaged, your face comes to life. You smile you have more range of voice, your, your eyes crinkle when you listen, your eyebrows go up and down to show more emotion. So that's the safety and social, you'll know when you're there, you'll feel it too. When you're in more of a flight fight sympathetic energy, your heart rate increases, so that, that's the chest. People might feel like a little bit of pressure on their chest. Um, you'll tense up like in your, uh, in your muscles, probably more in your arms, hands kind of area if you're in more of the shutdown collapsed state, you'll feel that in your gut. You'll, you'll feel, for, for me, it's more of like this acid kind of feel. Like I feel these little acid spikes in my stomach. Hmm. Uh, think about like, if, you, whenever you're, if you've been around like someone creepy and you just get this feeling in your gut, that's, that system is coming to life. You're not actually collapsing, but it's coming to life enough to kind of tell you like something's up here. Hmm. You know what I mean? So you'll feel these things in your body and the, the, the trick, the goal is to, to be mindfully with those feelings without judgment to be with them and let them do what they need to do. And they'll tell you, if you can really listen, this is a little more advanced, but they'll tell you what it needs. When you feel that stuff in your gut, your body will probably tell you it's time to be alone for a little bit, not, you know, become a hermit or anything like that, but like, it's time to be alone mindfully, maybe do some meditation, maybe turn the lights down, just sit in quiet. It might be time to do that. And then eventually you'll feel, okay, it's time to come out of this into our fight energy, do some push-ups. And then if you can do that mindfully, it's time to come out of that into our flight energy. And your body will tell you, eh, it's time to do a sprint. It's time to jump up and down. I don't know. And if you could do that, then your body would be like, you'll, you'll feel that like, Oh, I'm ready to like, go hug my kids. I'm ready to go pet my dog. I'm ready to socially engage and be close to other mammals. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I personally notice I think I get, I don't know if I would call it like air hunger, but if I get uh, stressed about something that my exhales like don't finish naturally, like there, there's no patience that I have for the end of my exhale and I'm always quick to initiate my next inhale, like in a rushed, almost panicky feel. And I mean, I could address it if I'm paying attention. I could, within yes. a few minutes, I could do some certain exercises, breathing exercises, or even sometimes I've been doing some eye exercises recently that have been really interesting to me that have been helping.
3: Yeah. But
2: um, but yeah, it takes that awareness. I guess that's what we try to teach here, like get people it's to... Safe self-examine live a more self-examined lifestyle i guess
3: as much as possible and it might not be much at first and that's okay as you you want to build the capacity to be with your feelings i don't expect people to go meditate and sit with their stuff and cry it out all at once but if you can become curious that's a step and if you can look at word and say how's my stomach feeling right now at this moment that's a step forward so i think more and more and more you, you build the capacity to be with this stuff that's good so asking
2: questions yourself like how do i feel in my neck or face my chest
3: out of curiosity not a judgment Stomach. not out of evaluation but just yeah. i'm really curious like how am i feeling right now that's kind of that's ideal where you, where you want to be and you want to do that little by little more and more and you'll build the capacity to do like a you know a 10 minute meditation and like really sit with and let some of that pain come out
2: and you know you, know, you mentioned a lot on your podcast about um You know, like, be a good friend yourself. Like, you know, I guess, you know, what would you say to a friend that's experiencing what you're feeling now? You know, can you say that to yourself? If I'm I'm reading that right from listening to you, like, just that mentality of, like, be there for yourself. Don't fight it. Don't judge it. You know, make space for whatever it is.
3: I had an episode on that that recently uh, called Treat Yourself Like a New Friend. And the idea here is, or a potential new friend, the idea is... When you meet someone new, you don't tell them all your stuff all at once. <laughs> they get they get won't be them. a friend. For them. <laughs> might not be. <laughs> you get to know them little by little. And so if you are a stranger to yourself, treat yourself like a potential new friend. You don't. You want to dive into all the painful stuff at first. You might, you might get there if they're a good, If you become a good friend to yourself in the future. You might do that. But just get to know yourself little by little at first, just like you would uh, a, new, a potential new friend.
2: Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate that advice. And I know it's really late on the, the left side of the country where you're at. So I'll, um, I'll respect your time here. If people want to learn more, obviously your your podcast is Stuck Not Broken. I highly recommend listeners to Thank check you. it out. It's, um, it's really well done. Justin just, uh, you know, he's got a big heart, obviously, and he's passionate about this work. And I think it comes through in the message and how you present it really well. So I appreciate you doing Thanks, what you, you do. I've definitely found it valuable myself. Um, wh- how else can people find you if they want to reach out and maybe if they want to work with you one-on-one?
3: JustinLMFT.com. That's where I have information about uh, working one-on-one and I have a blog and I have um, a new course I just made. It's called building safety anchors, which the, the goal is 30 days of, of practice and learning in bite-sized doses and oh, the goal is to help the person that individual to figure out what works for me and so i lead them through 30 days of figuring out what works for you and your wonderful beautiful nervous system what speaks to you individually like, as an individual
2: and that is that an online course or is that <laughs> like does that have a live component to it is it all like pre-recorded no, or? It,
3: it's all like, there's some audio components there's some pdfs and then a day-to-day um challenge where you okay. just mark off you know i did i did today check oh nice and step by step bite size uh i don't I want it to be too much i did not want it to be like overwhelming right so it's bite-sized stuff but it's um yeah planned learning and doing really oh
2: that's great man that's awesome well thanks for thank you making the world a better place and doing your part and sharing your gift man you're good at it so i think you found the right good. thing I appreciate um it. You. for the listeners out there i want to thank everybody for tuning in and really grateful for your listening. And I hope you got something useful out of it. And I really encourage you guys to check out Justin's work. And stay tuned for more episodes. Guys, we'll, we'll uh, be back soon with some new stuff. Have a great day.
1: Well, thanks again for tuning in for that. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know that I did. It was really cool to finally see Justin face-to-face after hearing his voice in my ears for the past year or so. So I'm really grateful for him being out there, putting the work out that he is. Again, I thank you guys for tuning in today. If there's other guests that you have in mind that you'd like to hear on the podcast, please send them my way and I'll do what I can to uh, book an interview with them. Also, if you're enjoying these and you want these to continue, please let me know and show your support by going to your podcast player and and offering hopefully a five-star review. And if you're uh, one of the Mindful Movement regular listeners and you want to find other ways to support us, we do have a membership available now that you'll have some exclusive content to. So you can check the links in the description for that. Um, And any questions you have about this topic, please post them and then we'll do our best to uh, get back to you. Thanks again for tuning in today. Have a great day.